0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I'm an instructor at McMaster University, and I'm very excited to be joined today by Dominic Packer, one of the authors of The Power of Us, along with Jay Van Bavel. Dominic is a professor at Lehigh University and an expert in group identity and social psychology. Dominic, thank you so much for joining me and speaking about this book.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm really excited for our conversation today.
0: I'm wondering if you could start by just telling us a bit about uh, yourself, uh, what identities (laughs) are important to you, um, how did you come to this topic, and what is roughly your academic history?
1: Sure. So I am a social psychologist and a professor at Lehigh University, um, which is in Pennsylvania in the United States. I'm um, actually British by birth, but grew up in Canada. So being Canadian is an important part of my sense of self, absolutely. Um, I'm a dad um, and an amateur photographer. It's a new hobby of mine. (laughs) So those would be all things that I think about on a sort of day-to-day basis. Um, My academic journey uh, started at McGill University in Montreal. As an undergraduate, I went to the University of Toronto uh, to do my PhD, which is where I met my co-author, Jay Van Babel. Uh, We've met as young PhD students um, in the department there uh, and have worked together ever since really for the last uh, 15 to 16 years um, Mm. studying issues of identity, how it is that people's sense of self, which is a multifaceted thing, but a lot of which is grounded in the groups that we belong to, how that influences everything from very basic kinds of perceptions, even things like taste and smell, to the things we believe, to what our preferences are, what we'd like to achieve, how it can shape our goals, and ultimately shape large-scale group behavior, including things like uh, leadership, um, as well as things even including social change and and revolution.
0: Hmm. At the time that you started doing this research 15 years ago, was it as kind of um, uh, Hmm. (laughs) self-evidently important as it is now?
1: I mean, I think it was in the sense that intergroup dynamics are, are always a salient issue. There's always conflict in societies between groups of various kinds. But that said, it's, had, it's felt lately like the things we chose to study as young graduate students <laughs> have become more and more pressingly relevant to everyone else. Right. So we've always been interested in these issues, but suddenly we live in a world where everyone's obsessed about issues of political polarization and intergroup conflict, and now uh, with the situation in Ukraine uh, and Russia, right, international conflict as well. So uh, the things we've long been interested in that always seemed really important to us are suddenly pressing to everybody.
0: And has that been has that been good for the uh, has that been good for you or uh, I don't know uh, I t- think too many <laughs> speak speaking engagement requests
1: <laughs> it's been good for us in the sense of yeah lots of podcasts want to talk about it uh, and it's probably helped our book sales uh, at times I do wonder whether it's good for the world though mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we could do with a little bit less conflict in in some yes. areas
0: yeah it seems like a topic where it's good for I don't know the people who research it to care about, but when everyone on the uh, when mm. when everyone is now suddenly, um, you know, a, a, a scholar of uh, in, interpersonal <laughs> group identity and moral reasoning, uh, that might be a source of concern. <laughs>
1: That's right. A little worrying.
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned a number of topics and a number of identities, both um, professional and personal, and that is uh, much of what comprises this book. Um, yeah, it really is kind of uh, a crash course, extremely uh, readable, very uh, very accessible, um, and, and quite fun with a lot of um, Fascinating examples. Is there anything in particular that uh, at the time motivated your interest in the topic? Were there any like, uh, I don't know, cult groups or uh, corporate scandals or um, uh, football (laughs) rivalries that motivated your uh, interest in this field? (laughs)
1: I think for Jay and I, our fundamental initial motivation had to do with intergroup relations and especially prejudice, Mm. Uh, understanding prejudice and discrimination, uh, whether on the basis of race. I I actually studied initially in graduate school on the basis of age. So I did a Mm. lot of work with my advisor at the beginning on on ageism. Um, One thing that happened while we were in graduate school, though, was the Iraq War, Mm -hmm. uh, the second Iraq War. um, And there was a phrase uttered by the then American president, George W. Bush, which really caught my attention. You know, there were protests against the war and a lot of opposition um, to going to war. Um, And he at one point said, well, you're either with us or you're Hmm. against us. (laughs) And that to me seemed fundamentally incorrect, but it got me interested in this issue of what does drive dissent and what drives people to challenge groups uh, that they belong to and really kickstarted for me a career on under, trying to understand the relationship between one's identity as a group member uh, in that case it might be you know a citizenship a member of a country but it could also be an organization you work for and what might motivate you to to challenge that group and mm. sort of contrary to a lot of expectations it's not necessarily the people who are disengaged from the group who don't care or who are inherently rebellious or um, just all around jerks, (laughs) which is what we often think about dissenters. Mm. Um, It's often the people actually who care the most about Mm. a group who will dissent when they come to believe that what the group is doing is bad for the group, bad for us. And it's because they care that they they want to stand up and do something about it, even though challenging your group is hard, uh, often because you are ridiculed or rejected for it. Right. so that's something that happened early on that motivated at least a large part of, of what I've done with my research since. Um, but it's like everything you know over over a career is sort of morphed in all sorts of interesting directions, and and uh, the two of us have taken these things in, in a whole variety of different um, down a different variety of different a- avenues. I, I, I
0: want to dig in a bit more to this. Uh, you're either with us or you're you're against us. Mm. Um, it seems. Uh, tautologically true or, or there's some logical binary sense in which it is true mm. but it is clearly like not an accurate representation of what it means to engage politically with a with a nation <laughs> right. or with a or with a war um, what what does a sentence like that do in the minds of the listeners or in the you know hearts of the American people like what is the uh, kind of rhetorical strategy behind using that kind of language?
1: I mean I think the intent of that kind of language is to sort of uh, rally around the you know rally everyone around the flag and and batten down the hatches on dissent um you know like we've got a, an important mission here. Eye on the prize, people, that, you know, for this moment at least, is more important than the quibbles you might have about my strategy or this idea or even the big picture questions about, you know, what are we doing <laughs> uh, as a nation? I think, you know, leaders often engage in that kind of, of behavior, especially um, during times of intergroup conflict. So there's a, there's a lot of work uh Has been done in social psychology and other areas on um, how people respond to dissent and and especially to in group criticism. What happens when people criticize their groups? Um, And there's a variety of factors that make it more or less acceptable. But one of the factors that seems to make it less acceptable to people is intergroup conflict. So it's all well and good, they might say, to criticize our group when we're at peace, when we don't have enemies, when we're not in conflict with others. That's fine. But if we are facing a conflict uh, with, a, with another group or another country, that's no longer acceptable to challenge what we're up to. Um, and I think psychologically you can understand why people respond that way. It feels like when your group's under threat, you know, you've got to rise to the group's defense. But what it neglects, of course, is that It's really important, perhaps especially during times of intergroup conflict, to make good decisions, to reason carefully, to criticize ideas, to make sure that they really are as robust as as we think they are, to question our strategy, right? Like all of those are really important things and they don't stop being important just because we're in a conflict. Um, And so this this tendency uh, is actually, I think, often quite uh, detrimental to groups um, rather than being to their benefit. So the paper I wrote, at least initially on this, was responding directly to Bush's phrase, mm. and, and the title uh, is um, On Being Both With Us and Against Us, <laughs> uh, in the sense that I'm absolutely with us, and that I want us to do well and to thrive and to do what's good and moral, uh, but I do not agree <laughs> with the current uh, current position or current uh, understanding of, of, of what we're doing.
0: Mm. Is there... Um generally a a rule or a principle on what types of dissent or criticism of a group are most salient? Like, um, Mm. does criticism from within kind of hit differently psychologically than criticism from outside?
1: Yes, it does. So um, a very robust finding is that it's much more acceptable for in-group members to criticize a group than outsiders. Uh, They're much more likely to be regarded positively and to be listened to. Um, But then even within the group, there are distinctions, right? So it's often considered to be more acceptable for old timers. People who've been in the group for a long time have established their credentials to criticize, but much less acceptable for newcomers, right? You've just joined, who are you to to talk trash about us? Um, And that makes a lot of sense again, but when you step back from it and think, well, what's in the best interest of the group in the big picture, often, you know, newcomers are the people who have new ideas, who bring outside perspectives, who see things in a different light and can recognize, hey, wait a second, why, like, why, why do we do this thing, these things in this way? And those are often the insights that we actually want to hear. Um, and so it's a real challenge for groups to overcome these sort of allergic reactions they can have to criticism from newcomers or outsiders who you know, despite being annoying, might actually have really useful things to say. Um, And so questions often become, how can you encourage groups to listen to those voices?
0: when when I, when I hear, when I hear this kind of thing, I can't help but feel that there's like so many analogies between like at the level of individual groups, but also just at the level of society at large, like naive Mm -hmm. teenagers, you know, like um, (sighs) uh, versus the old conservatives, you know, Um, there's, there's, there's kind of universal, it seems to me like social dynamics where new people come in, they, they are able to see with fresh eyes, all the, you know, kind of problems Mm -hmm. or uh, all the issues. And then as you, Mature, you. I. It's not clear to me. It maybe it's some sometimes becoming wiser or understanding that some things are the way they they are, you know, for a reason. But there's also right. a kind of complicity or complacency, or you know, uh, that's too hard to change those things. It seems like a yeah. There's like a microcosm and macrocosm version of it. And this mm-hmm. whatever this phenomenon is, it's it it almost feels to me like a feature of to your point earlier about about age or growing or time spent with other people. It's almost like a human mm-hmm. universal type of thing.
1: Yeah, that sounds that sounds very plausible. <laughs> I think you see the dynamic in in all sorts of places.
0: This is yeah, this is my un- unfalsifiable uh, psychological theory. Um, <laughs> there are so many interesting aspects of yeah of of identity and and um, uh, group belongingness that 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 you touch on in the book and that are uh, extremely interesting to me. One of them that I am um, have been thinking about a lot lately is is how um, how much it is possible for people to d- differentially activate different parts of their identity based on context. So mm-hmm. when I'm in Canada and people are criticizing Canada it's highly non-threatening and in fact I will participate in the right. r- ribaldry but when I move to a different country and they start bashing on Canadians all of a sudden I'm a, I'm a patriot, you know. Mm-hmm. um, <laughs> um th- there are plenty of examples where this can happen with when I'm when I'm with my friends who are super, you know, progressive, hyper hyper leftist all of a sudden I'm I'm I I, I feel myself, you know, being a centrist uh, and right. when I hang around with people who are, you know, more on the other side of the spectrum, I, I suddenly become, you know, ultra woke. Um, so there's this kind of um, uh, responsive, um, you know, uh, um, bringing up of different parts of one's identity in, in response to social situations or being able to engage different things at a sports game or whatever like that, Um I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about that phenomenon, and mm. um, yeah, maybe some of your own work in yeah how we can engage different so many different parts of our identities either simultaneously or in response to uh, threat or conflict.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think your examples are great, are great because they highlight something certainly that can bring identities in and out of focus or make them more or less salient, which is distinctiveness. Um, so, one of the things that makes an identity apparent to you oftentimes is that it's different from some other identity, right? You might, again, you're hanging out with your super woke friends and you realize, well, maybe I'm not quite as woke as them. And so it activates more of a centrist identity and, and, um, you know, there's classic research with, with kids in classrooms, which found that, um, student, the kids tend to be more aware of their gender identity to the extent that that was a minority in the classroom. Mm. And so, uh, A boy among few boys, many girls, would be more likely to think of himself as a boy than a boy in a classroom full of other males, right? Something that makes you different. Um, But there are all sorts of things, of course, that can bring identities in and out of focus, uh, even... you know, in the course of a single day, we talk in the book about how you can imagine getting up in the morning and it's one kind of identity that animates you early on. So for me, it's, you know, I got to get the kids out the door. So I'm really in parental mode. And then Mm -hmm. the drive to work, you turn on talk radio and it's all political and it's your political identity. You end up screaming at the radio and then then you arrive (laughs) at work and suddenly it's your professional self, whatever that occupation is, or it might be your, an identity within a particular organization, um, maybe the organization as a whole in some meetings where you're there representing us as a company. And then in another context, another meeting, it might be a subunit within the organization. You're representing the marketing team as opposed to the manufacturing team. And these are all parts of ourselves and they all come in and out of focus. And in each case, it changes a little bit. How you think about things and what the salient issues are? Um, and uh, ultimately can sort of cause you to behave somewhat differently in different sorts of contexts. Mm. Uh, And what's to some degree interesting about this is, although we're aware it's happening at some level, it also sort of feels oftentimes, at least quite natural, right? It's not like you feel like a completely different person throughout the day. And in some ways you're not, Uh, we have personalities and those lend some consistency to who we are uh, as well, Uh, but nevertheless, Uh, Both experiments, but also just sort of anecdotal evidence shows that these identities are surprisingly sort of flexible coming in and out of focus. Mm -hmm. And so we and others uh, routinely sort of mess around with people's identities in temporary ways, um, activating them simply sometimes by asking a bunch of questions about the identity. So in one of the studies that, speaking of Canadian identity, that Jay and his, um, actually a a good friend of ours, Michael Wool, who's at Carleton University in in Ottawa, have done. Mm Um, they did a taste test study in one of the Ottawa markets, an outdoor market, set up a stall, taste tests for maple syrup or for honey, and or for both, I should say. And both of these, of course, if you think about it, are sticky substances, they're both sweet, they both similar colors. Only one is attached in a meaningful way to the Canadian identity, maple syrup. Mm. And so... They had people come through this booth at the market and they had to do the taste test and rate the honey and and the the maple syrup for which one they preferred, how much they liked each one. Um, Half the participants, though, before they did the taste test had done a questionnaire which had asked them all about their Canadian identity. What do you like about being Canadian? What do Canadians like? Um, And so on. The other half had completed a different questionnaire having nothing to do with being Canadian. They're all Canadians, nevertheless. What they found was the people who had this Canadian identity activated, for whom it was now a sort of salient issue, ended up preferring the maple syrup, liking it more, rating it more positively than the honey. But that was not the case for the Canadians who weren't thinking of themselves as Canadian. And... And on the one hand, this is like a pretty trivial kind of effect. Like, who cares if you can make people honey, like honey, slightly hmm. more uh, momentarily? Uh-huh. But what we think it illustrates is, you know, first of all that identities can come in and out of focus, but also that it can shape even really basic perceptual things. So, not so surprising it might shape, you know, your, you know, how eager you are to wave a Canadian flag or something. But that it shapes your preference for maple syrup versus honey is actually quite remarkable. Mm.
0: Do you have – I know that there's a extensive debate in the psychological literature around perception versus cognition. Mm. Um, are, are you actually tasting it as better – Or is there some higher level cognitive process that even though like it hits your tongue in the same way, there's some, you know, um, whatever uh, processing thing that makes it seem like you would taste it better, but you're not, it doesn't actually taste better. This is, Mm -hmm. this is getting into uh, you know, fiery uh, kind of debate territory. It is. uh, do, Do you have a view on that matter?
1: I don't have a strong view on it. I'll say that I know Jay has argued uh, in print about that issue <laughs> with people, um, and I'm, I don't think that study uh, could tell us one way or the other. That <laughs> the, the way it was designed, I, I don't think it's it's able to do that. There, there is another line of research that Jay and, and some other people did uh, using smell, um, which I, I again I'm not sure to answer the question, but it's provocative and with regard to that question, which is. Um, it was done in Switzerland with a smell researcher, and they essentially used you know, sophisticated technology to, to waft various scents up people's nostrils. And in this case, the task was to rate how intense the scents were. And the thing about smell, right is if you walk into a room where someone's been wearing strong perfume or it's a movie theater and the smell of popcorn, right you initially smell that scent very intensely but very quickly you habituate to it. And so after a couple of minutes, you don't even notice the perfume anymore and you don't notice the smell of the popcorn in the theater. So the wafting people's scents up people's noses, one of the scents was popcorn, by the way, but the other scent and the critical one is the smell of chocolate. And it, it, this is being done in Switzerland. And so it's again, the same sort of methodology as the previous study where for half the participants, half of them are thinking of themselves as Swiss and the other half are not. And what they found is that for the people not thinking of themselves as Swiss, the the intensity when they're asked to rate how intensely they can smell things of both popcorn and chocolate falls over time. But for the participants thinking of themselves as Swiss, while that happens for the smell of the scent of uh, popcorn, it, it, it seems to attenuate the intensity and they're habituating to it. It doesn't happen, or at least not to the same degree for the smell of chocolate. That is... The people thinking of themselves as Swiss go on smelling it, detecting it more intensely for a longer period of time. Um, Again, could be some cognition going on there, but I think it's provocative, right? That that perhaps it's it's shaping, in that case, not how pleasantly you experience it, uh, but simply how much you can detect it in the environment.
0: So those are, I guess, examples of... People's national identity mm-hmm. being invoked to, uh, which kind of results in a, I don't know, perceptual change in the senses. Um, we we were talking just a minute ago of of ways that people's kind of uh, professional identities can can get engaged. Yeah, you know, what evidence do we have to suggest that? Uh, just an example that comes to mind: if you remind someone that they're a scientist or, or something mm. to that effect, they might behave in a way that they might not if they're just you know, behaving as normal. I think about like, uh, judges wearing robes in some sense, it's like a reminder, like you are a judge and have to, you know, behave as such and can't just be right. like, uh, you know, Neanderthal person, uh, <laughs> with your, with your biases, you must apply your professional identity. Yeah. Do, do, do we have good evidence to suggest that like in, in the invocation of a professional identity can actually change people's behavior?
1: So there's certainly some evidence for it. Um, and I think one of the things that you're pointing out with those examples, which is actually a crucial point, is that identity—the way in which that's going to shape behavior, especially as well as the, the way you think and what your preferences are—is in alignment with the norms of that identity, right? So, uh, if you activate a particular identity, whether it's a national identity or an occupational identity, uh, as that identity becomes salient to you and you sort of take that on, that becomes the, the, the lens through which you start to perceive the world, which is the sort of analogy we use a lot in the book, um, it's going to be in alignment with what you believe the norms of that identity are. This is mm-hmm. this is the way in which people like us behave. Um, so there's a study we talk about in the book early on, uh, sort of classic study of bankers um, in Zurich, where uh, they drew upon the sort of stereotype or, or conception of bankers as being somewhat selfish, right? That Part of the mission, of course, of banking is is to make a lot of money and that bankers might employ somewhat dubious means to do that. And so, you know, in the pursuit of self-interest, there might be some dishonesty going on. Uh, and indeed, if you ask people about what they think about bankers, especially post 2008, right, the people have had or often have still pretty negative conceptions, including a sense of dishonesty. Um, So for half of their participants, they'd reminded them that they were bankers, again, using a questionnaire. The other half, they're also bankers, but they'd been asked about other more mundane aspects of their lives, like how much television do you watch every week? They would then put in a task which allowed them to detect uh, cheating. Essentially, people were asked to flip a coin and report how many heads they got um, or could have been tails. It doesn't matter. And for every successful head, say, that they got, they would get paid, I believe it was uh, 20 euros, so quite a sizable chunk of money. It's all anonymous. Nobody's able to gonna, ever going to know how many heads you actually got. You just have to write it down on a piece of paper. And of course, under that sort of incentive structure, there is an incentive to cheat, right? So if no one's going to know, I could say I got 10 heads and earn um, you know 200 euros as opposed to five that maybe I got and only 100 euros. Um, in reality, the experimenters had no idea who had who had cheated and who hadn't, you know, how many heads they'd actually flipped, but they could know the difference between what, on average, in any given condition, people should have got by chance, which would have been 50-50. And what they found was that the bankers who had uh, been reminded that they were bankers did indeed appear to be somewhat more likely to cheat. That is, overestimate or inflate how many times they'd, they'd successfully got ahead. Uh, on that coin toss, thus making themselves more money. Um, it wasn't vastly more cheating, uh, but it was somewhat more relative to the bankers who just thought about themselves as bankers and there didn't appear to be much evidence of, for any inflation uh, of their estimates or the reports I should say in this case. Um, it's important to know that study has uh, didn't replicate in, in a very different kind of context with a different kind of bankers in a different part of the world and there's multiple explanations you could draw and realities we don't really know. One would be that maybe it was a spurious finding. The other is that maybe the norms, and this appears to be true for bankers in different kinds of places are actually quite different. And if it's identities guide behavior in alignment with norms, then um, that would make a lot of sense why you wouldn't always find exactly the same sorts of behaviors. Hmm. Uh, Despite that study, I, I think the, uh, there's plenty of evidence that people do absolutely align their behaviors with the norms of salient identities, and that um, you know, methodologically, if you're conducting experiments, it's an important issue whether asking a couple of questions about being a banker is enough to activate mm-hmm. that identity. Mm-hmm. But I think going to work at the bank, dressed as a banker, and spending all day in the banker's office, right, is certainly going to activate that identity. Yes. There's no question about it.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe this is a good place for just a minor intervention, because I'm sure that many people do know about this reproducibility crisis, the field of psychology, social psychology uh, has been going through, um, yeah, has been had to look at itself in the mirror and ask, you know, how much of this stuff we do is actually true. What is kind of your credence um, in a lot of the claims made in this book or books like it? And maybe there's a broader question, which is like, even in even if you know every study was false or or, or something or every study, mm. the effect was not as large as we thought it was, um, are there still phenomena we can point to kind of on first principles grounds of like uh, anecdotal experience or merely observing the world we know that groups are important. So like nothing no study can change <laughs> sure. that. Um, but yeah, maybe you could speak a bit to these kinds of broader methodological concerns,
1: yeah. so social psychology. Specifically, but much more broadly, I mean, across psych- the psychological sciences, but indeed the social sciences and beyond into biology and, and, and we now know into cancer research. Mm-hmm. Um, there are these problems of reproducibility such that findings that were sort of widely believed to, well-established, are now being called into question as people go back and sort of reinvestigate them with um, better methods, um, more transparent methodologies, uh, as well as really critically larger sample sizes. I think a lot of the issues in, in social psychology had to do with running studies with samples that were simply too small. And if you have small samples, what that means is the estimates you get of what you're observing are unstable or are less likely to be close to, you know, representative of the truth of the matter. Um, and so you can create literatures that are just flawed. Um, as we wrote the book, um, you know we we considered that with with regard to many of the things we, we discussed. And, and what we have tried to do is write a book that's ultimately about principles of identity supported by as much research as we can find that supports the principle. Um, and the idea being that any given experiment could turn out uh, not to be replicable or to have, uh, the, 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 you know, was, the finding is less robust than we'd expected, but that the principles we're talking about are grounded in far more than a single experiment or even a, a single line of experiments. Um, they're grounded in in many cases, decades of research using quite different methodologies and not just in many cases from social psychology, but you see the same sort of things happening in political, you know, being observed in mm. political science and sociology and mm. anthropology and mm. in biology in some cases. Um, and so for the most part, at least, the sort of principles we're talking about uh, are grounded, we think, anyway, quite robustly in, in large and various types of, of research. Um and there were certainly some things that i uh, you know we have great confidence in uh, in part because we've shown these effects and found them for ourselves in our own labs like we've we've seen them happen um, and we've seen them happen using you know, really open methods and, and robust methods with large samples. One of them is a thing we, we draw on extensively in the book, and has had a huge influence on in how we think about identity and group dynamics, which is a paradigm called the minimal groups paradigm, or methodology mm-hmm. called the minimal groups paradigm, which involves pe- assigning people uh, in a more or less random fashion to a novel group that they've never heard of before. It can be as arbitrary as you're on team A and you're on <laughs> team B, and one of the things that's really fascinating about this, this methodology is that it immediately produces group-based biases. Mm. People immediately feel a sense of affiliation to their own group. They immediately like their own group more. They immediately start to discriminate if given the chance between their group and another group, giving more resources to their group than the other side. Um, this is a super robust foundation on which you can build all sorts of other um, Ideas and, and also build other experiments uh, to investigate uh, group and intergroup dynamics. And as said, there's a long history of you know people using this methodology, which gives us some confidence. And then in addition to that, we have used it so extensively ourselves. Indeed, you can do this in a in a university classroom or even a high school classroom. Right, divide the class in half, put them both on teams, and you see this dynamic Im- immediately start to to emerge. So to come to your question of you know are there things that we have great confidence in, um, through sort of direct observation, whether it's anecdotal out there in the real world. Yes. And one of those things, um, is this minimal group kind of paradigm, which forms an intellectual foundation for a lot of what we end up talking about. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. This, um, (laughs) This minimal group thing is, is kind of scary. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, people will start being protective and defensive and start carving out, um, I don't know, uh, adversarial sentiments on the basis of really anything. Um, Right. It's interesting. I'm, I'm currently working at an organization where a lot of what we're doing is kind of building the org chart and the incentive design and how these parts of the organization relate to each other. And a huge amount of what that involves is the recognition that the moment that we start putting labels on people hmm. or on groups of people or on teams, their s- primary interest will become the like self-preservation of that thing, um, mm-hmm. which is uh, deeply unusual because it only became a thing because we like gave it a name and then made a bunch of people work on it. But we could have easily given it a different name and had them work with uh, someone else. So, um do, why is this? I mean, is there a, a evolutionary explanation or a social explanation hmm. for why the moment we start uh, carving up groups or putting them, you know, give, put, putting a group of people together and giving them a label, their priority now becomes, you know, the, the, that their self-preservation or the differentiation of them versus some kind of other.
1: Yeah, so we think the way we talk about it anyway is that it it probably is an evolved kind of propensity and that it's essentially a readiness for affiliation, that it's as if people are always on the lookout for the possibility to affiliate with other people. Um, And those affiliations can be of different kinds, right? It doesn't have to be group-based. It could be interpersonal, right? And so there's work uh, also going back a long way showing that if, if you simply are told that someone you're about to interact with who you've never met before likes you, that they've mm-hmm. heard a bit about you and they they think you're cool, you immediately <laughs> like them more and you trust right. them more and those interactions often go better, right? Even if it's a lie, even if the experiment yeah. has made it up. Um, so in this case, it's sort of that, but expanded or taken to a group context where, hey, I've never heard of <laughs> Team A before, but you know I'm on Team A. Let's see if we can make something of this. And this would be functional, you can imagine, from an evolutionary sort of perspective, because it would allow people to form rapid coalitions with others in order to exploit opportunities that are only exploitable collectively or to to defend oneself collectively or in the context of a collective. Um, Humans are a super vulnerable species, right? We don't have scales and spines and we're not poisonous and we're probably quite delicious. So we've survived by getting together with others, uh, both to protect ourselves from predators and um, threats, but also to exploit opportunities to do things collectively that we just can't accomplish as individuals. So it makes a lot of sense that we have these sort of groupy urges. Mm. Um, For that reason, though, I think while we have the propensity, right, if you tell someone you're on team A, it immediately seems to kick into gear this this affiliate of psychology where you're looking to connect with the in-group and potentially differentiate that in-group from other groups, from out groups, um, at the, I suspect, at least, that ultimately, if if there is no cooperative opportunity there, right? if, if that doesn't lead to affiliative benefits, then that identity is not going to last. It's not like you put people on team A and they're then team A-ers for life. right? <laughs> um, if team A turns out to be an unrewarding place or a place where no one, no one else is invested in the identity, then it's not going to stay your identity for very long. Uh, Instead, some other kind of salient identity cue will probably become more important. Um, But we certainly seem as humans to have this readiness, uh, as if we're always sort of on the lookout for affiliative possibilities, and groups are often one of them.
0: Is there, um, yeah, a related thing I've I've observed is that... um, uh, people people do, do become very uh, uh, affiliated to these sense of identities to the point where losing it feels like losing something more than just uh, oneself. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've often thought about like, um, you know, people, I went to talk about, I don't know, China's going to take over and the US as an empire in decline or whatever. And, you know, to Americans, that's like a very threatening kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then I think about, you know, if you zoom out in the course of human history, no empire lasts, right? Everything is always completely in flux. There are cultures and right. peoples who come and go, and so it's like, is it? Why is it so bad <laughs> that hmm. that one's group ceases to exist? Right now, I I feel that it's bad <laughs> if you know whatever in groups hmm. I. Participate in cease to exist, but somehow I feel like that's different because <laughs> mathematicians and historians of science have like a valuable contribution to the world, and if we ceased to exist, then that would be the end of like our important lineage. Now, of course, right, uh, uh, everybody feels this way, but there, but but yeah, is there is what is the role of this like uh, self protective uh, aspect to it?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a great insight. So I, I already mentioned him, but our, our friend and collaborator, Michael Wohl, uh, Carlton, um, has done a lot of work over the years on a phenomenon He is uh, termed collective angst. And the state of collective angst is essentially fear for the future preservation of one's group um, and anxiety about it. And And some groups, of course, feel this quite acutely. So one of the groups they've studied... Uh, over the years is the Quebecois in Canada, so the French-Canadian community who has felt for a long time that their French language and French culture in Canada is under threat from a much larger dominant English culture. Um, Canadians as a whole feel some angst with regard to their Canadianness relative to the much larger and culturally potent (laughs) American identity, Um, uh, and so on. So it is absolutely a thing uh, that affects groups and affects their behaviour, Where it comes from, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't have a definitive answer, but I think part of the puzzle is that when a group identity becomes an identity for you, it's it's now part of yourself. And as much as we Mm. don't particularly most of the time look forward to the day our individual self ceases to exist on the earth, right, that we die as individuals it may be some of that same anxiety is also there when it's the group self, when I'm thinking about us and that's as much mm. a part of me. I sometimes get asked, um, you know, how do I know or what 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 makes the difference between just being part of a group? Like you're, you, you're a member, right? So you belong to a club as a member versus it's an identity for you. Mm. And one of the ways to tell, I think, is this sort of reaction. So mm. if, you if it feels, for example, when, as you mentioned, you know, when Canada gets criticized, uh, when you're not in Canada, you feel sort of a reactive to that, that would suggest ca- being Canadian is a part of your identity. You're responding mm-hmm. to that as if you personally had been criticized. If, on the other hand, you heard Canada being criticized and you didn't really react to it, and you say, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> uh, whatever, <laughs> yeah. then it might suggest that although you are Canadian in the sense of you are a citizen as a fact, it's not actually a really important part of your identity because you're not reacting to it as if you'd been criticized personally. And likewise, I think with the sort of fearing the end and the demise of an identity, that might be another signal that it really is an identity to you, right? If you Mm -hmm. thought Oh well, you know, we're all, we're all going to go the way of the Romans ultimately. Who cares? And it didn't bother you a bit. Then <laughs> maybe it's not a very important identity. But if you think, well, wait a second, it's hard to imagine. I can't, I can't imagine a world without this group in it. Um, and that really bothers me. Then it probably is an identity somewhat important to you. Perhaps as important in some cases as the individual self,
0: right? That's almost uh, I don't know. It's kind of a moving <laughs> uh, <laughs> way to look at it. I quite like that. I was I just um, as we were speaking, uh, a, a comic or meme uh, just came to mind that uh, <laughs> it, it summarizes so much of uh, this book. I'm sure you know it. You know it's it's it shows two. Kind of medieval uh, armies or villages, right. you know, symmetrically posed against each other. I know you're familiar with this, but uh, I'm just going to read it anyway because it's, it it um, it it summarizes so much of this thing. And on the group on the left, it points at the it says our blessed homeland. It points at the castle. It says our glorious leader, our great religion, our noble populace, and then the ship says our heroic adventurers. And on the other side, it's the exact same picture of the exact same castle and exact same people and exact same ship, but it says their barbarous waste. Their wicked despot, their primitive superstition, their backward savages, their brutish invaders. Um, That's true. Right. I think there's, a, I think there's some, some uh, great truth to that. Um, but it, but it leads me to this idea, uh, something that came up a lot in, in, in the book and in this conversation, is a kind of uh, uh, worrisome suspicion that all. Our perceptions of the world and of each other and of everything we do and that of everything we are is like filtered through this lens of mm-hmm. identity. It seems that there's no way to go about the world void of these notions because whenever you're doing anything, you're doing it at as a someone, right. Um, right. You, you can never escape. Um, you can never escape that. There is no new completely neutral vantage point where you are a no one who has no kind of, uh, identity relationship, um, to the thing. Um, I, I think about like, uh, in the philosophy of science, you know, Karl Popper, all observation is theory laden. Part of what we must mm-hmm. accept when we do science is that, uh, yeah, there is was, there was no such thing as purely kind of, uh, n- neutral observation. That might be like a, naive, uh, realism right. or something like that. Um, but, um, uh, um, the, the it, is that, is this something we are kind of, uh, uh, that we should be deeply pessimistic about, or is there a sense in which we can embrace the fact that we kind of are all standing on different vantage points, uh, and, and, and that this doesn't need to like destroy our ability to, you know, do science or measure things. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, how should we think about this notion that so much of our perception of the world is filtered through this identity lens?
1: Well, I think we should accept it as a fact. And then if you've accepted it as a fact, or at least a a strong hypothesis, then um, you might think what you'd want to do about it, including, you know, developing things like good scientific methodologies. Um, So we use a phrase in the book that all reality is, is social reality. And to illustrate this point in in my social psychology class, I actually just did this last week with the students, ask them to think about and tell me what do they believe that they know with 100% certainty, like Mm -hmm. 100% you would stake your life on this being (laughs) true. And what's really fascinating about this exercise is that people start a little bit confident and then the more they think about it, after a couple of minutes, they realize there's almost nothing. And when I ask people to raise their hand, ultimately, and report on these things, you get the most mundane of facts. <laughs> um, one plus one equals two. Uh, the sky is blue, to which I say, well, actually, <laughs> the sky is not blue. Um, so you get these, these super, you know, they're certain about them, but they are not very interesting kinds of things. And what it begins to point out to you is that almost everything that we know is mediated through or has been learned through or due to other people, right? Even things that we really, most of us at least take for granted, like the earth is round. How many of us have actually circumnavigated the globe? How many of us have been you know, far enough up into space to see that the world is round? Um, hardly anyone, right? Yeah, there's a few people who have direct personal evidence for it, but the rest of us rely on other people's expertise whether direct observation or you know, using scientific reasoning to, to, to know that the earth is round. And for that reason, should you believe that with 100% certainty? Well, maybe 99.5 or 99.9, mm-hmm. but 100%? Well, you've never had direct access to yourself. And, and you go from there. But the thing about that is, is that if all reality is ultimately social reality and that it's mediated through others, it means that you have to start asking the question about who is it that gets listened to? Right. Who gets to shape your view of reality? And this is where you come back to groups <laughs> because the people we ultimately end up listening to about especially things that are controversial or contested or difficult to know or understand are going to be our in-groups, right? It's, the, it's us who we're going to listen to. We're not going to listen to them. Hmm. We're going to listen to us. And then you begin to realize how you could have communities who actually don't believe that the earth is round, that have come to believe and have a, a elaborate way of sustaining this belief that the earth is actually a flat surface right and there really are people who believe that and who believe many other sorts of things in what to everyone else look like crazy conspiracy theories but within that community makes sense to people and the reason it makes sense is that they're doing what all of us do which is they're listening to the people they trust and the people they trust are their their community and they don't particularly trust the people outside the community especially if there's a lot of conflict between their community and others Um, and so you can get this sort of echo chamber, like you know, phenomenon where you get wildly different versions of the universe in different communities. Uh, but in reality, what those people are doing isn't really that much different than what all of us do all the time with pretty much mm-hmm. all of our knowledge, uh, which is mm-hmm. that we have to rely on other people. That said, groups and societies over time have developed techniques and the scientific method is probably the the best technique we humans have developed to date to try to interrogate reality and get to the truth of the matter, uh, perhaps born more accurately over time, right. To, and we've learned that adopting a critical eye, continually questioning, is that right? Is that, you know, is there different evidence looking for evidence that doesn't simply confirm what we already believe, right? that you can create institutions and processes that help us to do that and continually guide us toward beliefs and toward knowledge structures that are perhaps more veridical. And for that reason, ultimately more useful, right? That allow you to develop a vaccine for a virus you've never encountered before, almost on a moment's notice, right? That takes serious (laughs) institution building and process building to develop ways of improving your knowledge over time. And that's what science is ultimately. there are other, other kinds of approaches as well, um, mm-hmm. including you know, philosophical reasoning and so on that can lead you toward what you would hope would be ultimately more accurate answers. But these don't occur spontaneously. And again, they occur within communities. Right? So you have science, you have communities of scientists and communities that believe and trust scientists. But as we're seeing in our, in our current moment, right, you have large swaths of societies that deeply distrust science and deeply trust scientists and that way of knowing. Uh, and who want to go off in quite different directions? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: there's uh, there's there's so much in this uh, this line of reasoning. In a past life, uh, this was uh, the subject of of a, a master's degree that I did in this very uh, topic of who mm-hmm. does who believes whom, in particular right. about uh, scientific <laughs> topics. And one of my one of my biggest kind of pet peeves is this idea that you can convince you know the other side with the facts. Um, right. And I say to people, were you convinced with the facts? Like, uh, I certainly was not convinced of the ver- veracity of climate change through reading, you know, atmospheric physics papers. Mm-hmm. I think that the people around me believe in this. I probably watched a YouTube video that told me that, that it was legit. I trusted the person who made the YouTube video. And uh, since that day, I was a climate change person, you know? <laughs> um, right. And I think that that is as true of the vast majority of things I believe. I didn't really get there from first principles, so why should we expect uh, anyone else to do so? That's right. It's an interesting Life is idea.
1: Far too complicated <laughs> to yes, exactly to do that in all domains, right? Yeah. we we only have enough time and mental capacity to be experts in a couple of things, right? Yes. If we're lucky, exactly. Um, and so you have to rely on others for everything else.
0: Yeah, and it, I, I I think it's so interesting this idea of you know trust trust the science. It's like. <laughs> if you look at scientists, they don't trust most of the other scientists. What right. I know from spending time <laughs> with scientists is that they are deeply skeptical of, of That's most right. of their call, co- you know, many of their colleagues, um, people, people's in-group identities are really invoked when, uh, people they're working with or around publish things even slightly, you know, um, outside of, uh, their kind of scope of, um, beliefs or anything like that. But, but that, that, doesn't mean, and you can, you know, find a scientist who will say anything about anything, right? Um, scientists mm-hmm. are human, and therefore that's have right. many true and false uh, beliefs about many things. But that that's that's not what we mean. It's not about trusting any individual scientist. We can invoke like an, an institution or set of norms or, or mm-hmm. processes that are like more rational or more truth-seeking than any individual within um, those kind of systems
1: absolutely yeah absolutely
0: um we we only have uh, a couple minutes left um, I wanted to uh, very quickly ask about uh, one uh, final topic if I may um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm I currently serve on a lot of uh, admissions <laughs> committees at various uh, universities and organizations and a huge topic that we speak about is diversity uh, equity inclusion it's a huge identity based kind of phenomenon, uh, at the moment. And I know that mm-hmm. you've done a lot of research on this topic. Um, yeah. Are there any, uh, high level, uh, insights about this question, um, that are kind of related to this identity of, uh, this, 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 this question of, uh, group identity when it comes to something as kind of thorny and, uh, complex as, um, choosing the, the makeup or the design of groups to be diverse in various ways. Uh, in, mm-hmm. the, in the organization I run, we want it to be politically diverse and racially diverse and uh, gender and socioeconomic status. And it is, uh, needless to say, very complicated. I'm mm-hmm. curious if you have any final <laughs> uh, insights on that question.
1: It's certainly complicated and can lead to many uh, thorny issues, absolutely. And so I don't think I have any um, terribly insightful, conclusive thoughts on it, other than to say that diversity within groups and within organizations needs to be thought of as much more than simply bringing in a representative set of people, right? It's not just about recruiting and admissions, although that's obviously a crucial first step, but ultimately for groups to truly be diverse and to benefit from diversity, if we think about, you know, that groups benefit from the infusion of alternate perspectives and, and innovative ideas and creativity, what that requires is that when people come from different backgrounds and experiences and with different skills and ideas, when they all join the group, they have to be able to contribute to the group, right? They have to be equally able to exercise voice uh, and have the possibility of influence in the group. Um, and that moves beyond simply representative diversity to inclusion and, and belongingness and, and creating environments where people are equally able to contribute their diversity of perspectives. That's what we're striving to do. Um, but I think in a lot of the real-life organizational context in which we operate, we're sort of in the infancy of that, figuring out how do we move simply from diversifying to creating truly diverse and, and inclusive and warm and accepting uh, and indeed vibrant environments simply because we've got so many people there who are really bringing uh, their divergent views and perspectives and experiences um, to the table uh, in an equitable and cool way. So I don't have any solutions on how to do that other than to articulate that that really, I think, is, is the central challenge in many cases at this point.
0: Right. It seems to me that yes, this book is about identity. But but uh, s- speaking with you, it, um, I do sense a very strong undercurrent of like uh, uh, dissent. Um, <laughs> people being able to express uh, their voice. Um, the the central importance of like discourse and inclusion and change from within and the ability to right. uh, criticize and um, inspect because like that. It strikes me as what I'm hearing from you is that that is one of the number one ways we can fight against a lot of the kind of prejudices that our group identities uh, give rise to.
1: That's right. I mean, our identities are multifaceted. Critical part of ourselves is our groups. And given that we spend so much of our lives in those groups, we want them to be good places. And that's where we live our lives. And that's where we are, in fact, individuals. (laughs) And so there's always this, this interesting tension between the individual self and the collective self. And a lot of what we're trying to talk about in this group is, or this book, I should say, is here's how group identities affect us. It's important to know that in part so we can take control of it right? So that we can, we're not unduly swayed by them so that they don't lead us to do things we don't want to do. So they don't cause us to be prejudiced when we didn't intend to be prejudiced. We recognize these forces, we can take charge of them and actually use groups for good instead of uh, for bad.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. I do have one final question, which is, has anyone ever thought that the book was like the power of us, like the United States?
1: (laughs) No, well, they might've, that's a good question. So I have a Google alert set for whenever the book is mentioned in the press. Uh, and I have to say most of the alerts are the power of us, (laughs) right. You know, in relation to Ukraine at the moment. (laughs) Um, that's great. Well, um, uh,
0: nevertheless, uh, it could be read in that way because that certainly is a is, a, is an identity many people hold uh, hold Indeed. strongly. But um, this has been a, a really wonderful conversation. We've barely scratched the surface of um, the set of ideas that you cover in this book and in your research and in the broader world of uh, yeah group identity and social psychology. So um, Dominic Packer, the book is The Power of Us, written with Jay Van Bavel. Thank you so much for speaking with me today.